are very welcome to Monday's Richie Allen radio show. With me, Richie Allen, who else would it be with you till 7 o'clock? I've got two, I think, as usual, very interesting guests for you this evening. You can comment during the programme on the website richieallen.co.uk, but then you know that anyway, don't you? It's Monday. I tell you what, it's very dark out with the old hour having gone back this weekend. It's blooming dark out, so it is. But you, we've got each other. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Asher, if we didn't have one another, where would we be? David Curtin is the founder of the Heritage Party and the leader of the party. You'll know David, he's a former London Assembly member. Really interesting guy, always great value. David returns to the programme this hour. He'll be with me around about 5.30pm. Don't miss him. A little bit later on, I welcome back David Sedgwick to the programme. David is an author and an academic and a really good guy too. Two good guys on the programme today. David has a new book out. Well, it came out in the summer. It's called Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? It's vital reading. So we'll talk to David about his book and much more besides in the second hour. It's a pair of Davids on Monday's Richie Allen Show with your BBG. Me, the BBG. Yeah. All right. Stop, Richie. Still fiddling around with me knobs here. Oh, there you go. I just turned my microphone off. You see what I mean? You see what I mean? You wouldn't do it if you were pissed right up. Yeah, I just, just muted my own microphone like a like an idiot. Anyway, there are some interesting things on the website richieallen.co.uk. I'll be talking about one or two said of said things today, so so do maybe check it out if you can. Comment live. I've got some good news for you, by the way. Do you know when you try to log on at five o'clock on richieallen.co.uk to listen to the radio show? And do you know sometimes when it's overwhelmed by traffic? Because quite honestly, no bull spit, um, tens of thousands of people at exactly the same time are trying to get on the programme. So do you know what we came up with, Hayden Hewitt and myself? Well, I came up with it and Hayden went, that's not a bad idea, Richie. There is going to be a page, a separate web page. It isn't working yet, so don't get excited. And it's going to be called RichieBackup.com. R-I-C-H-I-E-B-A-C-K-U-P, RichieBackup.com. Now, it isn't live yet. This page won't be live for a couple of days, but it'll be there, richiebackup.com. Of course, Fab Radio International in Manchester. Of course, Tune In Radio. But there will be a richiebackup.com. All right? All right. So you can stop whinging about connectivity. Yes, one or two of our US-based listeners were caught out a little bit by the start time of today's programme because on Sunday morning at two o'clock, some genius decided to take the hour, uh, take the clock even, and move it back by one hour. Wintertime hours, daylight saving hours or something like that. That's the way, that's, that's what they do. And they, they continue to, be, to debate this every year. I spoke about this yesterday. I'll tell you what made me laugh, dear listener. And I've written about this, not that it matters what I write about, because it's all opinion at the end of the day. And opinions are like bum holes. Everyone's got one, right? But I did, I was very amused today to wake up and to read in the independent media that Liz Truss was behind the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline back in September. It was Liz Truss, apparently, 
Why do we know it was Liz Truss? Well, some bloke called Kim.com told us that it was Liz Truss and therefore it must have been Liz Truss because apparently 60 seconds after the blasts occurred at the bottom of the seabed, Liz Truss allegedly sent a text message to Anthony Blinken, who happens to be the US Secretary of State. It is alleged that Truss, Liz Truss, the now departed ex-Prime Minister, she texted him, it's done. Do you believe that? I don't believe it. Well, I tell you who does believe it, unsurprisingly, Kremlin mouthpiece George Galloway. The subjects we're dealing with tonight could scarcely be of greater moment. As I said, a state of virtual war exists between Russia and the United Kingdom. Never in second place, the United Kingdom's hatred of everything Russian, everything in Moscow, everything in the Kremlin is now vividly on display. I'd prefer to listen to James O'Brien, to be honest. The British bombed the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Did they? The Brits? The British launched an attack on the Black Sea fleet of the Russian Federation yesterday. Wow. The British were involved in the attack on the civilian infrastructure of the Kerch Bridge leading between the mainland of Russia and the Crimea. Any evidence, George? How do we know all this? Be- A good question. Because Russia had illegally hacked the private telephone of the briefly British Prime Minister Liz Trust. You don't say. It's Liz Trust, by the way, George. Liz Trust. It's Liz Trust, George. We can say did not have time for the spycraft class at the Foreign Office. We know that the British did it because... I'm waiting, I'm all ears. She texted Anthony Blinken, the US Secretaries of State, one minute after the explosion of the Nord Stream pipelines... He can barely contain himself, Galloway. ...lines with the heavily coded <laughs> words, it's done. Uh, it must have been Liz then. She is more Austin Powers than James Bond, I'll give you that. And you had 12 hours to come up with something better than that, but but you didn't. But then she wasn't long in the job. This was one minute after the explosion. Yeah, you said that already. Get to the point. And before anybody else in the world even knew that the explosion had taken place. So she was delighted with this terrorist attack on the pipeline, Liz Truss, as Prime Minister. She was thrilled with herself. And of all the people in the world she texted to say that it was done, she texted the US Secretary of State. Yeah, sure she did. The fact that the Russians could so easily hack the phone of the British Prime Minister... Is bullshit. ...is a remarkable thing. It's bullshit, George. ...as they were using the Israeli-invented spyware Pegasus software which is represented in court if you want to take a legal action against them. Still waiting for some evidence over here. Them ...by none other than Cherie Blair, KC, the wife of the former British Prime Minister, <sighs> Tony Blair. So those dreaded Israelis and their spying technology, the architects of it, are represented by Cherie Blair. Again, none of this amounts to evidence, George. Curiouser and curious. Evidence. Israeli spyware 
enabled the Kremlin to listen in and read the messages of the British Prime Minister. Evidence. And the British Prime Minister was so stupid, she gave away British culpability. Yeah, there is a moment of pause there. She's not the brightest spark in the world now, I'll give you that. Of a top-secret terrorist operation directly to the phone of the US Secretary of State and without the use of codes. Still waiting for evidence. She could have said it's raining in London or is it raining in Washington or have you hand your washing out to dry? But no, she texted the words, it's done. Well, it's done now, Liz. The Russians know that you did it. Yeah, Liz Truss did it. <laughs> uh, no, I don't imagine Liz Truss did do it. Obviously, Galloway didn't go on to produce any evidence at all, screen grabs, phone numbers, nothing. Just the the claims of a guy called Kim.com that after overseeing the operation to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline, Liz Truss sent a text message to the US Secretary of State. Why do we know this? Well, because Kim.com said it happened. Dear listener, you weren't born yesterday. I wasn't born yesterday either. Of course it's feasible. Of course it's even possible that British intelligence or French intelligence, maybe not German intelligence this time, American, Israeli intelligence, even Irish intelligence. No, no, scrap that one. It's possible that the intelligence agencies of another country were involved in blowing up the effing pipeline. But they wouldn't have told Liz Truss about it. I think we know that. It's nonsense. Absolute abject nonsense, right? They've been doing it for years. Of course, we can discuss that. You know, who had the most to gain from blowing up the pipeline? I'm all for that. We can do that all day long, but show me the evidence that Liz Truss was involved. It's pretty wretched from Galloway, who's nothing more than Russia's Lord Ho-Ho, really. It's crap, isn't it? But this is the independent media. This is the truth or industrial complex. They couldn't wait to fill their boots last night. Some idiot called Kim.com said that Liz Truss texted somebody a minute after the bombs went off. Well, that's, that's proof if ever you needed it. Ah, the indie media. Let's just leave that one there because I'm in fine form this Monday and I don't want to depress myself by thinking about it. You know, you, I give you a final word on it. Like you, you, you lambast the mainstream media for making up stuff and, you know, basically acting as clickbait merchants. And then you go and do the exact same thing yourself. It's a bit silly really, isn't it? Mad that Liz Truss ordered the attack and then texted Blinken to say it's done a minute later. It's not even funny, it's so ridiculous. But anyway, as I mentioned today in my little piece on it, don't ad hominem me. I'm not saying that it's impossible, as I've already said, that the Brits, the Spanish, the Italians, God knows who, the Israelis were involved. But uh, Liz Truss certainly wasn't. No, I can't buy that. But then I suppose you've got to leave a little bit of um, room for, for any possibility or eventuality. Um, th- this is very important. Orders to keep all captive birds and poultry indoors will be extended across the whole of England from next week. The mandatory housing measures have been stepped up by the UK's Chief Veterinary Officer, 
making it a legal requirement to keep these animals inside and to follow stringent biosecurity measures to help protect flocks from disease. The new rules will come into force at a minute past midnight on Monday next, giving owners a week to prepare. They've got a week to lock up or lock down all of their poultry, all of their chickens and their toikies. Got to lock them all down. Sky News reports that this comes after the national risk of bird flu in wild birds was raised to very high. And the whole of Great Britain was made a bird flu prevention zone two weeks ago. Christine Middlemiss is the chief veterinary officer. She said we are now facing this year the largest ever outbreak of bird flu and we are seeing rapid escalation in the number of cases on commercial farms and in backyard birds across England. She went on to say the risk of kept birds being exposed to disease has reached a point where it is now necessary for all birds to be housed until further notice. They're locking down the poultry. The ducks. Ducks are poultry too, are they? I was never any good at this sort of thing. Natural history, biology. I know you've got chickens and toikies in any case. Um, Let's hear from Sky News Science and Technology Editor Tom Clark. And this is interesting indeed. I mean, if you're a commercial poultry keeper, this is about as serious as it gets. This is the equivalent of those coronavirus lockdowns we all live through. Poultry is effectively being locked down in uh, you know, across England. Poultry is effectively being locked down across England. Lockdown. I mean, if you're a commercial poultry keeper, this is about as serious as it gets. This is the equivalent of those coronavirus lockdowns we all live through. Poultry is effectively being locked down in uh, you know, across England. Ah, the language. Now, we went through it, didn't we, all of us? Three times we went through it. So I suppose we could we could offer a bit of advice. The least we could do is offer some bloody advice to the poultry before they all get locked down starting next Monday. Don't kill granny. I don't even know if uh, chickens have grannies. I I believe from, from reading stuff over the years that chickens and hens are very matriarchal. They're, they're very into the matriarchy. So I don't know if that's the case, that they would be you know, careful about not embracing their grannies and stuff like that. But um, yeah, more of what that. What is the point of seeing granny on Christmas Day if you end up burying her in the new year? So chickens shouldn't have a Christmas either. Absolutely not. We cannot risk this killing granny and granddad. Absolutely. We cannot risk this killing vulnerable siblings, uh, disabled people. You know, we have to get this under control. Disabled chickens. And if you were to ask uh, LBC broadcaster James O'Brien what he would, uh, what advice he would give to the country's poultry. Get the bloody jab. Get the bloody jab. Get the bloody jab. Get the bloody jab. Just get the bloody jab. From James O'Brien. It's quarter past five. That was crap. I know. I know. It's Monday. <laughs> it's Monday. <laughs> That's my excuse. So they're locking down the poultry. They're locking down the poultry. What else did this Sky News science and technology guy Tom Clark say? Every bird will have to be kept indoors. It will have to be kept covered. Strict new biosecurity measures come into place. Movement of birds uh, between farms and on and off farms is now tightly regulated. Lots of restrictions on the industry here. Why? Well, we've just been seeing an incredible increase in the amount of bird flu in the UK. It spent the summer here it normally disappears during the summer months we have these occasional outbreaks in the winter it spent the summer here it spent the summer here but then it disappeared this one stayed through the summer it is now across england uh in other parts of the uk as well um uh, we've had 
80 cases since the beginning of October, which is a number we've never seen before. And just over the 80 cases, blah, 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 poultry, blah, blah, blah. You know where he's going with this, don't you? You know what the big payoff is going to be at the end, don't you? The weekend, four new outbreaks from Suffolk into Lincolnshire and over to Lancashire. Uh, so they've reacted in the strongest way possible, which is to essentially restrict all movement and uh, the outdoor keeping of birds. And that's obviously going to have a massive impact on the industry. We've already culled about 3 million turkeys in the UK as part of this, the ongoing outbreak we're seeing. We only produce about 11 million a year, so that has a, a massive impact. And it 3 million healthy turkeys they've, they've, they've slaughtered and burned. It will certainly hit some producers very, very hard. What we're talking about less... Like, People are fucking starving in this country. Like. Oh, and this is very, very significant, is why we're in this situation at all. And that's because the disease is now prevalent in wild birds. They often get the blame here, but it's important to remember these viruses, these highly pathogenic avian influenzas, as they call, originated in poultry flocks in Asia in the late 1990s. What appears to be happening, and we're seeing this before our very eyes right now, in England and across Northern Europe, is the virus has now become adapted to live in wild birds as well. And we now have a vicious cycle where poultry flocks can incubate the virus. Wild birds can then spread it between flocks. It also spreads between flocks as well. Right, so poultry flocks can incubate the virus and then it spreads to wild flocks, blah, blah, blah. It raises major concerns for health of poultry flocks, but also now wild birds. And we're seeing outbreaks in other mammals like seals. and in Seals? In um, farm mammals a concern that if this continues, it could pose a risk to human health. And that's something officials here are monitoring very Yeah, and that's the payoff, you see, right there at the very end. There's your payoff right there. A concern that if this continues, it could pose a risk to human health. Yeah. And that's something officials here are monitoring very, very closely. Yeah, yeah. They're monitoring whether or not it'll pose a threat to human health. And whether it does or it doesn't, they're going to say, I think, in my opinion, this is conjecture, they will eventually say, well, it does pose a risk to human health. Therefore, we've got a jab for you. We've got a jab for you. The flu, the new flu jab, the new bird flu jab. We reckon we can add that to the schedule very quickly. And sure, don't you know it? Thankfully, because of our COVID jab uh, advancement in technology and all of that, we, we've just got the mRNA. We've just got to tweak it a little bit. And we've got a bird flu jab for you as well this winter. It's so predictable. It's almost funny. But it isn't really funny. It's nearly 19 minutes past five. Looking forward to reading your comments on all of this. Now, immigration or migration, whatever you fancy. Big, big story today. The Home Secretary is a woman called Suella Braverman. She's under pressure, is Suella Braverman. She's taking it from every side, from every angle. She's the woman who was fired by Liz Truss for being in breach of the ministerial code. She apparently sent messages, not top security clearance messages, not top secret stuff, but she used her own personal phone to send messages and not the, the email address and the phone that she was given by, basically by the government, right? By those who look after government security. So she's getting hammered for that. And she's also getting hammered for the housing of 
asylum seekers or migrant workers. This is a big story today. The BBC says that pressure is mounting on Braverman over the government's management of migrant processing centres. Now, if you were following events over the weekend, you will know that there was an attack on a facility in Dover yesterday by a man who allegedly threw a couple of incendiary devices over the wall of a detention centre, a processing centre, housing migrants, and then he went to a petrol station and killed himself. The Conservative Party MP Sir Roger Gale did the media today and said that the situation at one centre, a place called Manston, is totally unacceptable. It's meant to hold 2,000 people. Apparently there are 4,000 people in there and this has been a big row today. The same old row, the same old nonsense that we've been listening to, reading about and talking about for years. Illegal immigration, economic migration, asylum seekers... The uh, policy of the UK government towards asylum seekers and migrants crossing the channel and all of that jazz. We're going to be talking about this with David Curtin in a few minutes' time. Uh, Alp Mehmet is somebody I interviewed many years ago when I was in Spain. He's the man behind Migrant Watch UK and here he is telling uh, talk radio, in fact, Mike Graham, I think, that the attacks on Braverman are motivated by those or are originating with those who don't like the fact that she wants to reduce the numbers of illegal migrants coming in to the UK. Here's Alp Mimit. Well, maybe it has something to do with what Suella Braverman said at the party conference when she said she's not only concerned and will deal with the, the channel crisis, but she also says that she's going to tackle the out-of-control legal Mm. migration that is going on. Now, I I suspect that there are those who are uh, displeased, to say the least, because it it affects them if the sort of uncontrolled, cheaper, lower-skilled immigration uh, is denied them. And that has something to do with it. With with the opposition, the Labour Party, frankly, any uh, opposition worth its salt would... Uh, uh, would would attack the government. But it also, I believe, has something to do with the fact that what Suella Braverman was saying at her party conference actually appealed to a lot of people in and around the country. And that has more to do with the fact that um, Yvette Cooper, who is is a, a decent person, but frankly she and her party have absolutely no no uh, no no answer mm. and certainly no policies that would tackle this and no. that's why they're avoiding they're avoiding the ball they're going for the player going for the player don't play the man play the ball play the issue don't play uh, the player I'll be back with you in a moment. A couple of more, I think, interesting stories to tell you about before we get David Curtin on the line. It is Monday's Richie Allen Show. Cold, seasonal, flu and respiratory diseases. We all get them. Never before have your body's defences been under such constant attack. Now more than ever, it's essential to have a robust immune system. Inspired by the Zelenko Protocol, Immunex 365 is a unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin. 
Immunex 365 has been specifically formulated to maximize the effect of each ingredient, giving your immune system an optimum boost. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immunex 365 every day. UK listeners of The Richie Allen Show can use their special 15% discount code, RichieAllen365, at checkout. Go to immunex365.co.uk to get yours now. Now with two-day track delivery free. Lovely. Uncensored, unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. And I don't know if I can do these stories quickly. I'm not sure if I can. Before I do anything else, let me just adjust something here. I'm getting a bit pissed off with something. Hang on. On the desk here. Lovely. That's a bit better. Marvellous. Let's do that. Lovely. Yeah. Great. Um, That's a little bit better for me. Thank you. I, I don't know if I can even bring it up because um, the website is a bit slow. I I noted in the Times today, and I did write about this on on my website, that um you know this you know this thing by whereby you can petition the government to debate something if you manage to collect more than a hundred thousand signatures. Do you know that you do? Of course you know that. Now the government isn't duty bound to debate something just because you gather 100,000 signatures online, but it is supposed to, in theory, at least take it into consideration. Now, 100,000 people, or many more, uh, did petition the government to debate the safety and the efficacy of COVID jabs, COVID vaccines. We, We don't like to call them vaccines. And last week, Some MPs did take part in a debate on the COVID jab, some did, at Westminster Hall. Now, the named MPs, the the Times named some of these today, Sir Christopher Chope was there, he's Christchurch MP. Andrew Bridgen was there, now he's he's a a COVID recovery group guy. He was a big lockdown sceptic, was Bridgen. And there were some others there as well. To their credit, fair play to them for turning up. Now, one or two of these MPs who turned up to this debate last week, they asked a couple of very legitimate questions, including Chope, you know. He said that the vaccines were not perfectly safe and that there was a question about whether or not they are effective or not. Andrew Bridgen asked why the jab was given to people who had natural immunity. You know, immunity acquired through infection from the virus. So it's not very strong stuff, but at least they were throwing a few things out there. Uh, But the Times went after these MPs big time today and threw an ad hominem attack at them. Namely, they didn't take the MPs on on the basis of what they said. They took them on because Piers Corbyn and others were in the gallery. So they did what the broadsheet media and the media in general does it uh, linked them to crazy, so-called crazy anti-vaxxers. I don't think Piers Corbyn is particularly crazy. Extremely eccentric, maybe, I might say Piers is, but not crazy by any stretch of the imagination. And he's a qualified man, isn't he? Um, but others, too, they, they linked um, these MPs to uh, Right Said Fred, to Richard and Fred, and also to Beverly Turner. So it's pretty crap, really. But I wasn't even aware that they, they, they had met last week in, say it for me, in uh, Westminster Hall. But they did, and the media went after it. So that was interesting enough today. And also today, something I wanted to discuss, but I suppose we'll, I don't know if I'll have time to do it today, but I'd like to get into it in in, in some detail at some stage this week, even though it's shaping up to be a bloody uh, big week, or busy week anyway, uh, for the programme, is um, policing. 
uh, woke policing and, and whatnot. But look, we'll get into to that maybe another day. I'll tell you what I'll do right now. I'll take a tune while I get David Curtin on the line. It is Monday's Richie Allen Show. The time is 27 and a half minutes past the hour. This is a bit of 80s cheese, but I love it a lot. That is Owen Paul and my favourite waste of time. Jean Ann was asking me about the football yesterday. I went to see United in West Ham at Old Trafford yesterday. And amazingly, I saw both sides of football. I saw the ugly side of the game and I saw the, the great side of the game. I was a bit early and I was standing around outside hotel football yesterday. And I was surrounded by a group of West Ham fans. There must have been about five or six of them. They were fairly young anyway. Now, the police presence was ridiculous at Old Trafford yesterday. Ridiculous. Mounted police and police in riot gear. Just nonsense. And I happened to mention to a guy standing next to me, a West Ham fan, I said, they must be really worried about your lot, I said. Being friendly, making conversation. This is a bit silly. And this dickhead turned around to me yesterday and he said, you should be worried. And I thought he was joking, but he wasn't joking. He said, you should be worried. And then he swore at me. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, yeah. And he swore at me again. Honest to God, I'm not even wearing United colours. I've just got just got a jacket on me, a regular jacket. So anyway, I had a few choice words for him and told him that if he didn't shut his mouth, I'd beat him to death and throw him into the canal. And that there wasn't enough support there for me to stop, uh, for him to stop me doing that. Just a moron. So anyway, I went into the ground. And, and this is the side of football I hate. I've been going to football my entire life, but I hate these idiots. And United have got plenty of them in their own support, by the way. Um, but I got into the ground, I was in the north stand and I was sitting uh, down a few minutes just before kickoff. and then all of these people came to these empty seats around me and it was lovely. They were from Belfast, it was a big family of about 13 or 14, men and women and they're all there to treat Grandad. Grandad was 75 yesterday, big United fan. So all the kids, the grandkids and, and uh, the mums and dads came with Grandad to watch the United game and the crack was great. Everybody having a chat and a crack, watching the game, no screaming out silly abuse and it was a pleasure. You see, if you could have it that way all the time, I'd go to football all the time and not just occasionally. But there you go, yeah. Muppets everywhere, 28 minutes to the top of the hour. This is the Richie Allen Show. Let's welcome back to the programme. It's been about six months. Then again, of course, I've not been here all of the time either, but we won't get back into that. He is uh, the founder and the leader of the Heritage Party. And at one time, of course, he was an MLA in London. I always love welcoming back uh, former teacher to David Curtin. David, you are very welcome back. How are you? Thank you, Richie. I'm good. I'm good. I'm doing all right. Very busy at the moment with all the craziness going on. But yeah. uh, I'm trying to cope with it as best as I can. It's mad at the moment. It might get even madder. But let, let, let me ask you this before we get into the rights and the wrongs of, of immigration. Whatever anybody thinks about this government's policy towards illegal migration or economic migration or even to, to this government's asylum policies... We'd all agree that putting 4,000 people into a place that's only supposed to keep 2,000 people, that's not right, that. Whatever we think about migration or immigration, people should be treated with humanity, right? Yeah, yes, I think so. Absolutely. It's wrong to overcrowd people. I would say that about prisons as well. Anyone who is uh, detained by the state should be kept in conditions which are humane, of course, absolutely. But 
I, I do see the problem with this because there are so many people coming across so quickly that, you know, when you have an emergency situation, things don't often work out, you know, as you would like to when they're not in an emergency, when they're not in a crisis. Fair enough. We might come back to that. I'm going to be devil's advocate here today. I have to be, so I'm going to put things... The media is a disgrace, you see. You've got guys like James O'Brien on LBC calling people like you, without naming you, basically calling you thick-as-mince racists. Now, not only are you not a racist, but I, I know you're not to be thick-as-mince. But if we leave all of that ugly rhetoric aside, let me put some of the stuff to you that if O'Brien had any courage, he'd put to you personally on air. Um, he says, like it or lump it, Brexit has caused this problem because if the UK was still working within the European Union, it would have better relationships with its French and its Dutch and its German neighbours and they would be able to do more to prevent people getting here illegally. Does he have a point? No, he doesn't. I mean, he's trying to blame everything on Brexit. And these are people who were against Brexit from way before the referendum. And they're still against Brexit. And they're still moaning and remoaning and wanting to rejoin the European Union. And basically, they're whining that they haven't got their own way and just blaming every single problem that comes up on Brexit. It's not true at all. I mean, this is a crisis that it's caused by something else. I mean, I do actually blame the Conservative government, the Tories, for partly causing the crisis, because as a country, as part of NATO, we have been engaging in foreign wars, in foreign military adventures, which we should never have done, which have destabilized otherwise stable countries, Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and there's mi millions of migrants coming from those countries um, because of the wars which we've perpetrated. That is one of the causes, absolutely. But it's not the cause of Albanians coming to the UK. And when that's the main um, bulk of people coming this year illegally across the channel. Uh, Albanians, 80%, I think, something like that, military-aged men from Albania. So that's not caused by either Brexit or the wars which we shouldn't have been involved in, but it's caused by um, <laughs> the fact that if someone gets here as an economic migrant, they get a very, very nice package. They get a hotel room or they get a house and they get an Aspen card with 175 spending pounds a week on it, as well as meals and television and everything. I mean, uh, this this is absolutely ridiculous that you know that we're offering such a wonderful reward for people who do come here illegally. We shouldn't be doing that, and that would stop uh, the problem. As well as we shouldn't be escorting uh, illegal dinghies and boats across the channel into Dover and then shipping them off to nice four-star hotels. The whole situation is just mad. There's a, some, some really interesting things in there, so, so let's go through them one by one. Interestingly enough, David, to give O'Brien some credit, he did mention the interventions of, of previous governments and present governments in countries overseas playing a part in leading to migrant flows. He, he, he did do that. But, but I'm going to say that even though I was all in favour of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union, I'm going to say that I think O'Brien has a point when he says, if you look at it from his, if you want to even call it a narrow perspective, 
but he's got a point. The French have been pretty clear about, I mean, they, they were pretty clear back in 2016 about the desire to punish the UK. The Germans, and by the Germans, of course, I mean their governments, not the people, their desire to make it pretty ugly for any country leaving the European Union. And I've heard on this programme that the French authorities in, in, in Calais are basically turning their backs on, on, on this thing. So, so he does have a point, whether we like it or not, whether Brexit is good or not. I, I was glad the UK left. I wish Ireland would leave the European Union. But it might not be as bad if um, we hadn't stuck our fingers up to the European Union. So I just want to press you on that because I think if we were still in the European Union today, the British government could do more with, the French, with their French counterparts in preventing some of this going on. Well, you, you did have the Dublin Three regulations in the European Union, and we were part of that when we were in the European Union. And what they say is that if someone comes as a migrant, they're supposed to claim asylum in the first country they come to. And then if they go on to another country, they can be sent back. So, But that didn't really work because that meant that Italy and Greece were lumped with everybody and they didn't, they just didn't have the capacity. So that broke down itself. And, you know, migrants that came through Greece ended up in Germany and Sweden for, for a, a lot of the time and the UK as well. I mean, absolutely. I don't think that the countries in Europe, the governments anyway, are going to give us an easy ride. They want to make life difficult for us and they want to show that if you leave the EU, then um, it's not going to be a bed of roses. That's what they want to try to show. But uh, we can do what uh, the opposite of that. I mean, the thing with the French is we're giving £55 million on top of £100 million or more for them to actually stop the flows coming across the channel. And they say, oh, we've stopped 48% uh, of the migrants coming across the channel and stopped 48% of the boats. But the thing is, they just have going back and have another go the next day. Yeah. So it doesn't actually stop the number of people coming across. They all just get across um, eventually anyway. But what we shouldn't be doing is sending out the border force, sending out the RNLI, sending out the Royal Navy to meet French Navy boats in the middle of the channel that are escorting dinghies and then picking them up and then bringing them like a taxi service back to Dover. This indicates that the British government is absolutely in 100% complicit in setting this up as a safe and easy route for migrants to come across the channel from France with the help of the French Navy and with the help of British um, agencies as well. And they continually uh, protest that they're not, there's nothing they can do about it. They could just stop meeting these dinghies in the middle of the channel with and the, then push um, them back to France. Sorry to interrupt, David. With the economic situation being, being as it is in this country, why would the UK government be complicit in facilitating the arrival of migrants while at the same time speaking, you know, out of, out of both sides of their mouth and, and, and telling the public that they're doing their best to stop it? Why would they be inflicting more economic misery on the country by allowing a free flow of migrants when we're basically up to Swanee when it comes to the economy? 
because it keeps housing prices high and it keeps rental prices high. And a lot of donors to the Tory party are, are property developers and uh, big landlords who have big property portfolios. And the number of people, uh, obviously in the UK, the indigenous population is decreasing. There's a total fertility rate of just about 1.5 among British women. So the population's decreasing and older people now uh, have got increased mortality for various reasons. We could go into that as a whole other yeah. thing, we have a whole other conversation. But so to keep uh, demand up for properties and for demand for new properties to be built, you need a continuing inflow of new people that need to be put in new houses and need to be uh, dispersed around the country. And then uh, landlords with property portfolios and property developers can continue to build new properties on the green belt, for example, and densify uh, cities and so on and have a con continual stream of people to go into those properties. I think that's a big part of it in terms of the finances of this anyway, and the financial motivation of the government and the people who fund the government and fund the Tory party. That's an interesting point. That We might come back to that in a moment. Something which, which, which has always struck me about the debate around migration. I'm going to give you the Jesus argument now, which I've heard many times before, but let me give it to you anyway. I came to this country originally in late 2003. There were employment opportunities in Ireland, but I was fed up of the place. I wanted a change, so, so I came over here and I got a job and, 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 and I worked here for some time, went abroad again, came back. Uh, so I'm a guest in the country. Um, and I'm always fascinated by the talk about migration, being an economic migrant myself to the UK. There is an argument, and I think it's a legitimate one, that present company, maybe included, maybe maybe not included, you'll tell me, is that a lot of the opposition to economic migration comes from the Christian right. Now, I'm agnostic, but I have a lot of respect for the Christian right. Uh, I, I always have had. But opposing economic migration to the country isn't really compatible with the teachings of Jesus. I don't remember, and I'm not being sarcastic, and you know me too long to know I'm not being sarcastic here. I don't remember reading Jesus saying that you should give your neighbour shelter and, and a meal and give him the coat off your back, but only if you have it to give him. Jesus's message and philosophy was um, you look after your fellow human being regardless of what your own circumstances are. And surely that applies to to the Christian right. It's mostly, at least from, from what I hear anyway, uh, the Christian right that are completely opposed to economic migration. We'll forget about uh, asylum seekers. I think both of us agree that where somebody is fleeing genuine persecution, they need to be looked after. I think we agree on that. But when it comes to economic migration, isn't it incompatible, this idea of, well, there's no room at the end, you'll have to go back? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, there was a, um, I don't think it's just the Christian right and to characterise it that way. I mean, you have people like Suella Braverman, who's on the right, and she's a Buddhist, and she's against uh, migration, as she says, as the Home Secretary. Yeah. But I think, you know, maybe the sort of conservative right or social conservatives, you could say, and uh, the Christian right might be part of that, would be against mass rapid immigration, but not against all immigration. I mean, some economic migration is good as long as it's 
controlled. But I think we have the situation today where we're just looking at it and it's it's going to cause societal breakdown if it continues at the level it is going on today. And we've got to think of the people who already live in the country who are British citizens or people who live here. And some of the people who are most against rapid immigration today are people who migrated over um, in the 60s and 70s where there were smaller numbers coming and people didn't get all of the package of welfare they did. They came over with a few pounds in their pocket and set up businesses and they worked hard and they paid into the system just like a British person for 30, 40 years. And um, you know now they can withdraw a pension or so on, but they worked hard and they contributed to the country and see people coming over now in masses from Albania and places like this. And clearly they're just taking advantage of um, what's there and they're not coming over to contribute, they're coming over to take um, and because the package is there. Now, I think we need to be much, much wiser in how we operate immigration and asylum systems. We need to separate the two. Obviously, if someone is a genuine asylum seeker, Perhaps Christians coming from Pakistan, for example, who are persecuted, uh, like Asia Bibi, who was a well-known case a few years ago. Um, we need to be able to provide asylum for people who are genuinely in need and that will contribute to the country as well, but need to keep out people who are just coming to take advantage and claim that they're asylum seekers deceptively, but who aren't actually asylum seekers, who are economic migrants. And they're coming simply for the reason that they want to um, get more money and take from the country. I don't blame them individually for doing that, but we need to look at the bigger picture that there just isn't enough space and housing and hospital places and school places in this country to cope with everybody. So it's better to sort of close the door um, <laughs> rather than have the whole thing fall apart. There are, there are people who work in, or not even work in, but own hospitality businesses, hotels, restaurants, bars, just 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 to look at that industry alone. And they would argue, they might argue with you, David, they might say, look, um, we're in a serious issue. We have a serious staff shortage issue at the moment. We, you know, if you're getting young men, particularly in from Albania of all places, you know, we can put these guys to work. Those guys will work. They'll pay taxes. The taxes will go into the exchequer and the exchequer will be able to use those taxes then to do the things you mentioned, build houses, build better hospitals and make life a little bit better. So what about that argument? There is a big labour shortage after the COVID nonsense and these guys could be put to work. Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, we are where we are after you, you say you, you, the, the phrase was very good there, the COVID nonsense. And it was the lockdown nonsense, which ruined whole sways of the economy, particularly the hospitality sector. I mean, it would have been better if none of that had happened. And then we wouldn't have the situation that we're in now. And yeah, I do understand. And people say, well, there's a, there are fewer people to do jobs. So if there are specific jobs that need to be done um, and there aren't any British people to do them. Yes, on a one-to-one -one basis, um, you can bring people over to do those jobs. But I think that we shouldn't use that as an excuse not to train British people to do the jobs that need to be done, young people particularly, and to undercut what would be a normal wage if we just had um, uh, strict controls on immigration. And also, I think 
one of the reasons why we don't have as many young people doing these kind of entry-level jobs is because we've got a crazy system at the moment where people are almost forced or coerced to stay in education beyond what is useful for a lot of people. I mean, back in the day, you might have had 10, 15, 20% of people going to university. Now it's 50% of people. So you've got like a couple of million people at university who it's not going to benefit. They should be out in entry-level jobs. And in England, the rules changed, un un rules changed under Cameron so that school, the school-leaving age, the normal school-leaving age, went for, up from 16 to 18. You're now not allowed, really, as a young person in England to not go to school. Um, you have to stay in education or training until you're 18, whereas before people would go out and get a job. And it's for a lot of people, it doesn't benefit them to stay in for another couple of years and just not actually do anything productive. It would be far better for them to work in a supermarket or work on a farm or something, get a couple of years salary, a couple of years of experience and a couple of years of maturity. And then they would also be able to do the jobs that people are complaining there's not enough people to do. So there's an easy solution there get more British young people working rather than keeping them in education when that's not necessary. And then you won't need to keep on bringing in people from abroad to fill these fabricated shortages. And I didn't even mention the shortage in the care home sector. We could talk about that all night. What about the point of view expressed on my website now by somebody called Teak? who says that the rationale regarding migration and property and keeping property prices artificially high is, he says, utter, he or she says, utter nonsense. And then he or she says, what's going on now is a Soros slash open society operation to dismantle sovereignty and to create chaos to bring about the new world order. Now, I would imagine, knowing my listeners as I do, that that's a pretty popular opinion that what we're seeing here with the COVID nonsense and the COVID nonsense to come maybe David this winter and beyond and other agendas we could talk about is a is is all part of a plan to shift the paradigm and to transform the way we live and to make us maybe accept things that we would have thought you know impossible many years ago do you have any sympathy with that point of view? Yeah, absolutely. But these things often have a number of different layers and a number of different levels and different people approaching things from a different point of view and perspective who are all going to gain something from it. So I don't think what I've said and what your viewer Teek there has said are mutually incompatible. There are people who like um, uh, continued migration because that's going to increase demand for housing. It's going to keep house prices higher than they would normally be. That's true. There are people who are run businesses who would like a supply of migrant workers, cheap migrant labor, because then they can pay them lower wages and increase their profit margins. There's also people in what you would call the new world order attached to the World Economic Forum, open society and so on, who want to 
um, crumble and crash society and create divisions and tensions by bringing in uh, hundreds of thousands of military age men who are not going to integrate properly and are going to be in conflict with local people wherever they go because they can't assimilate properly because they have completely different values and uh, different aims and goals uh, for what they want. And uh, all three of those different groups of people and more you can imagine and think of will benefit in some way from their own perspective from mass rapid immigration. So I think what I said before about property developers is true, but then that's also absolutely true that the people in the open society, the people who are, you know, think of themselves as puppet masters who want to crush nations and essentially bring in a one world government will also see this as something that they want to encourage and facilitate in order to get their plans to come to fruition. David, final question for today. Thanks for coming back on. It, it was said to me by a very clever Irish lady called Melissa Shumay. She said to me a few months ago, she said, the thing that's most notable about the changes in the law and the changes in practice, um, in political practices and medical practices, the changes that came in during the COVID nonsense, none of these were ever meant to be uh, temporary and that there would never be any backward step back to the way things used to be. Looking at, what are we today, Halloween, the 31st of October, do you agree with Melissa? Have certain norms now come into being? Will they be preserved? And should we, should we be, and I, I hate fear porn, so I'm not doing that, but should we be concerned about that looking ahead into this winter, next spring and beyond? Have they normalised certain practices that were pretty Orwellian? And how does that, you know, auger for us going forward? How does that bode for us going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's the age-old battle between good and evil, between freedom and slavery and freedom and tyranny that's just been going on and it's been accelerated in the last two years. And yes, I think that if the people that were pushing all of these lockdown and COVID nonsense and injections and so on uh, had got their way, these things, all of the things that they tried to put in place would still be here. Um, But the people have pushed back quite significantly. And I think we can take comfort and strength from that because, you know, if they got their way, the NHS nurses and doctors would have been fired from their jobs. They weren't. They were reinstated because of people power and because of people just being in the right time at the right place. You know, the, the doctor, I can't remember his name, but you could probably remind me, who confronted Sajid Javid when he oh, was yes. the health minister. I mean, that was a wonderful, you know, fortuitous moment. And it just embarrassed him so so much that they had to row back on this and reinstate doctors and nurses and not fire them for not having the jab. We would have had vaccine passports and digital identity and social credit already by now. And we may have had a six month lockdown at the beginning of this year, which could still be going on. But that's been pushed back. But now they're coming at it in another way. And yes, their plans are still going ahead because they're still now talking about central bank digital currency and this new thing that I've started to hear, this ESG, this environment, social and governance scoring, which is essentially the social credit system that everyone was warning about. And 
businesses are implementing this. And another thing that is happening just this month is local governments are implementing these 15-minute neighborhoods now. And we saw some of that during the lockdown period with low traffic neighborhoods. And all of a sudden, barriers went up to stop cars from moving freely in and out of their neighborhoods in a way that they could do before. Now you'd see in Oxford, and Canterbury are pioneering this idea of zoning their cities and then fining you if you drive in your car from one area to another, yeah. which means that they're going to try to coerce you into staying in your own locality and punish you if you go out of it. And, you know, th this just builds on what we had in Wales, where the Welsh government actually put in a five mile radius where you could go in the lot down period it was far stricter in Wales than England in the restrictions on travel so yes they are still pushing ahead but maybe they've they've taken the pressure off and then they push it on, on again and then they take the pressure off and then they push it on again so this is how they work and we can't relax when they take the pressure off we just got to keep pushing back on their agenda all the time and we've also got to know what we stand for as well as what they stand for we stand for re-establishing our fundamental freedoms for keeping cash and for living in a society where we can all just go about our business with the state not interfering with what we do. So that's what we need to aim for, uh, as well as understanding that we need to push back on their agenda. Thanks, David. And remind, you've been listening to David Curtin, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party. What's the website, David, please? Heritageparty.org. Please have a look and join if you like. Great to have you on. I hope you'll come back before Christmas. Thanks, Richie. Great to talk to you again. You too, my friend. David Curtin there, politician, former member of the London Assembly. Uh, I, I mentioned teacher as well. Heritageparty.co.uk. Good to have David back on the programme. Thanks for all your comments during that segment there. Cliff, I just saw your comment just this second. He's kind of answered it, Cliff. Cliff Moore, how are you doing, Cliff, by the way? Good to hear from you, pal. It's been a while. He asks, would David agree that making the public aware of how councils operate it might be a good thing because it will stir the public into more action at their local councils because Cliff notes that the local councils are bypassing national governments and uh, it's local councils driving the agenda. He's bang on. And I've got to say, Mark Windows, who was on this programme last week, last Thursday, has done, a, I, I think, a, a sterling job over the years explaining how this is a global agenda but driven locally by local authorities. Uh, thanks again to David Curtin. It's uh, Monday's programme. It is October 31st. I got, a, I got a carrier bag today, dear listener. You know, I'm always preaching about neighbourhoods and neighbours and people, you know, getting on with one another and knowing one another. And this is the first time I've done this since we, since we moved to Salford. But I did it because I said to myself, you preach stuff, you've got to practice it. So we, I got a big carrier bag today and I filled it with uh, chocolate bars. I could name the brands because it's pretty much every brand. Uh, Cadbury's this and Snickers that and, and M&M's and bloody everything else. And I said to some of the local neighbours, some of my close neighbours, I said, if you're bringing the kids around, you, you didn't knock on our door last year. I don't know why you didn't knock on our door last year. It's not as if we had the door locked and we were hiding behind a sofa like. We weren't. Uh, I would have been on air this time last year. But I said, uh, come around, bring the youngsters around and uh, El Frogo Tremendo 
will be on front door duty with a bag full of sweets. We don't say candy because we are, we're Irish and we are Brits. We don't say candy. It's coming up for a minute past six. The excitement of doing that when I was a kid, I used to love that, going out and about collecting sweets and apples and monkey nuts and all the rest of it. I will be speaking real soon, we will be speaking real soon to David Sedgwick. Uh, again, terrific guy, he's been on the programme a few times, he's an author and he has very recently published a brand new book about the BBC that is a must read. Colds, seasonal flu and respiratory diseases, a nuisance, but we all get them. Now more than ever, it is essential to have a robust immune system. Inspired by the Zelenko Protocol, Immune X365 is a unique formulation that combines effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin. Take back your health with just two capsules of Immune X365 every day. As a special launch offer to UK listeners of The Richie Allen Show, you will receive a discount of 15% by using the code RichieAllen365 at checkout. Go to immunex365.co.uk to get yours now and with free two-day track delivery. The Richie Allen Show features doctors, scientists, academics and researchers who have been banned by the legacy media. Support Richie now by making a financial contribution at richieallen.co.uk. Yes, I haven't mentioned support since I've been back, but I'm going to mention support. Just keep in mind the programme... Uh, I am running an advertising campaign at the moment for an Irish gentleman who's a very, very good gentleman. Um, but we, I don't do ads because I don't get very many ads. And some of the ads I am asked to run, I don't like the companies. There is, you are the, you, the listener, uh, are the oxygen for this programme, almost exclusively. So, so please support the programme if you can. I know these times are terrible. I'm well aware of it. So please tell me to fook off if things are difficult and you'll get no arguments from me. I've always said that over the eight years. Uh, if you can't afford it, forget about it. But if you can and you don't, do go to richieallen.co.uk. It says support your show at the top. Please, if you can and only if you can, make a contribution every month, even if it's only the price of a cup of tea. And I won't say that again until sometime in 2023 because I don't like saying it. But it's true. You, it's your programme. It always was. Now, David Sedgwick will be with me momentarily. I just felt like a bit of Billy Ocean today, you know. Had a bit of car trouble recently. Had to replace the old car. It's not nice driving something that you're not used to driving. And I was uh, playing car songs in the, uh, in, in the house the other day and on one of my runs. Just to amuse myself, this is Billy Ocean on your Richie Allen Show, Monday's programme. The time, four minutes past the hour. David Sedgwick is next. Keep those comments coming in at Comment Live. That's Comment Live on richieallen.co.uk. Billy Ocean, get out of my dreams, get into my car. We're rapidly approaching six minutes past the hour. Thanks for being there. Interesting stuff. Uh, David Curtin, lots of comments on that. Read the comments of others. Join in with them on Comment Live on the website there. Let's just get straight into David. You'll have heard David on the programme before. He's an academic and author. He has published such, uh, I think, vital books as The Fake News Factory, Tales from BBC Land, and BBC Brainwashing Britain, How and Why the BBC Controls Your Mind. Uh, he's got a new book out. It's about the BBC. This is hugely important. I don't know of anybody else 
who's doing this, who is documenting um, the biggest, I suppose, documenting the comings and goings and the policies of the biggest broadcasting corporation on the planet. It's hugely important research and work. His new book is called Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? Let's welcome back to the programme the one and only David Sedgwick. David, welcome back. Hi, uh, good evening, Richie, and uh, hello. nice to be here again. It's good to have you on. You were in Morecambe recently in your camper van. Sounds idyllic. Yes, <laughs> it was. It was a... It's a nice place, Morecambe, and we had a nice we had a nice time there. We're 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 doing the old staycations um, these days for various reasons. Yeah, that yeah. I'm sure, everybody knows about. Yeah, you and me both. We talked about this today. For our listeners who might be hearing you for the first time, why why have you made the BBC such a mainstay of your work in recent years? Before we talk about the new book, why is it so important? Well, uh, like you said at the beginning there, Richie, I, first of all, I think I just kind of stumbled into this um, from my career as a, an academic. I used to work as a university lecturer a few years ago, and I got involved in courses that were teaching media sort of studies to undergraduates. So I got into the, the sort of the, the academic sort of research, and I realized there's not really much about the BBC. Uh, and when you think it's such a, as you mentioned at the start, such a very big, powerful institution, and it is extremely powerful, and it plays a big role in people's lives. There's not really much um, research into it. Um, there's a few books being written, but they're usually praising it. I think there was one that came out just a few months ago celebrating its 100th birthday because it was 100 years old uh, in 2022, of course. So what there is about the BBC is, is definitely not critical, um, not really objective, and it's usually with a very, very positive spin. So I thought to myself, well, um, I've got quite a lot of unease about what it does, how it operates, um, and I thought I need to be uh, chronicling that, I think, for, I know this might sound grandiose, but for posterity, or at least to try to show people a different view of this hugely influential and powerful institution that is in their lives every day because a lot of people still sit down and watch television in the evening and they get this stuff pumped at them news and of course it's not even the news nowadays it's the content that they watch drama music sport everything is now politicized and i want to chronicle and chart what they're doing how they do it why they do it and hopefully just to enlighten people, I know that sounds a bit grandiose, but that, that's my mission and that, that's what I see myself doing nowadays. And you, you said to me today something that I wasn't aware of. When the BBC broadcasts a bulletin, a news bulletin, it, mm. um, it effectively disappears, to, for want mm. of a better way of putting it, that bulletin off the internet. So if you miss the BBC News at 1 mm. today or, 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 or Friday last... It's gone. I mean, I'm sure they will preserve it in their own archives. But mm. you, uh, the, 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 the not, not you particularly, because I know you don't have a television, but the licence fee payer doesn't have easy access to that. No. Um, it's a little bit of an Orwell um, memory hole, if, if you like, because you're right. What, what happens is um, if you miss the BBC news, the, the main evening news, or, or any uh, BBC news bulletin, 
if you go and try and find that on the iPlayer is the way I suppose most people would, would go to that. Within 24 hours, it's gone. You can, you can never find that again. It just disappears. It, they literally, like you said, they archive it for their own use, but they keep it from the public. So you've got to ask yourself, the first Boy. question is a public service broadcaster. That should surely be an archive that's available to the public. And then you can check up on the news. Maybe, maybe if you don't catch it within 24 hours, or you might, you might be doing it for research purposes. Now, clearly, there's a reason why they don't want the public to check back on the news. <laughs> just like in 1984, how the party, the main party there, were co constantly changing reality and making sure that everything they said seemed true in the present and you couldn't contradict contradict them or find out exactly what they'd said 24 hours ago or two weeks ago. So, yeah, that is true. If you go and find, try and find any news broadcast, it's disappeared, almost like it never happened. And I think there's a de definite reason why they do that. That's very interesting. You mentioned quite rightly that the, the corporation celebrated last week its 100th anniversary. Do you do you know through your own research, was there ever a time when the news output of the BBC could be trusted as reliable? Ooh, um, well, in my in that in that book I've just written, um, I, I make the argument that the BBC was formed originally um, by the British establishment in 1922 for one specific purpose, and that was to control the public forum. Because at the, in 1922, there were about half a dozen what used to be known as wireless companies, not, not the, the wireless we think of these days, but radio, the old radio. And there were about half a dozen of them going around Marconi and these kind of private companies. And the British, the British establishment, via the British government, its, its, its arm, its political arm, they realized that the 20th century was, and they rightly predicted that the 20th century was going to be the century of mass communication. And in order... For them to maintain their privilege, the, the establishment, they had to control that public forum. The best way to do that was to amalgamate the existing wireless companies into one state-controlled broadcasting company. Now, it's not supposed to be state-controlled. It's independent. The BBC keeps telling you it's independent. It isn't, of course. It's not independent at all. Um, it's granted a royal charter every 10 years by the British government. That's, that's not independence by any stretch of the imagination. So to answer that question there, Richie, not really, no. Um, and in, in my book, um, I would say it's never been independent uh, at all. Um, way back in the general, I mentioned in my book about the general strike in 1926, and the government and the capitalist class crushed the general strike in 1926 after, what, nine days with the help of the BBC. And there was mass complaints back in 1926 from ordinary people, trade unionists, people like that, saying, hey, you, you didn't give us a fair crack of the whip here. You just basically supported the government and the capitalist class here. And they, they did. And they, they crushed the strike through BBC coverage with, with the help of BBC coverage. So really since 1926, definitely. And I'd say from 1922, no, it, it's always it's always given a slanted, heavily politicised view of the world in favour of the ruling class. That was its objective, its purpose in 1922. And it remains its purpose in 2022. I'm the wrong guy to be speaking with you because I obviously share, you know, many if not all of your concerns about the BBC. But we live in this horrible world now where people are deplatformed. You're not going to get an airing 
not only are you not going to get an airing on the BBC, which is understandable, maybe, but you're not going to get an airing on LBC Radio and you won't no. be heard on Talk TV. So no. you're left, ultimately speaking, with a guy with whom mm. you agree, which which is tragic. But but look, we, we are where we are. So let me be the BBC for a moment. Yeah, They would say, it's interesting, David, that you say that, you know, the we're not independent and we're controlled by the government. Um, we've never been so at odds with a current administration as we are now. The Tories are screaming bloody murder against this. If it wasn't Nadine Dorries when she was Culture Secretary, it was others. They, the Tories hate us so much because we do our job properly that they want to defund the BBC and remove the uh, TV licence. So there's one now for you to put in your pipe, David. They, the, the Tories hate us and they are the government. They have been the government for 12 years. So we must be shining a light on, on their inadequacies. Yeah, of course they would they would say that. But you what you have to understand is the way that the political system works. I mean, what you're talking about there is what I call temporary government. So the Labour, Tory, Labour, Tory, it's, it's a it's a one party system. What I'm talking about, what the BBC actually the agenda that they are promoting is what I would call the permanent government. That is the British establishment state. Uh, Americans call it the deep state. Um, there's, there's various other words for it, but I'm talking about what the, B, the, the, the government of the day is kind of almost irrelevant to the BBC. And they're just having a, a you're quite right. They've been having a pop at Boris Johnson and the Tories and Cameron for many, many years. That's just their predilection. They just they just prefer Labour. They, they, they obviously love to have um, Keir Starmer, just as they love to have Tony Blair in there. That's because they they consider themselves to be good socialists. They, they, they all consider themselves to be metropolitan socialists and therefore we should support Labour. And we don't like Tories. It's a bit of a cliche. But when I talk about what the, the, the agenda that the BBC are promoting, I'm talking about a much bigger thing than just the people who happen to be in number 10 Downing Street. Yeah, they hate Boris Johnson. They don't like him because he because in their in their world, he supported Brexit. And how dare Boris Johnson ever do such a thing? That was a crime against his class, the ruling class, our class, the BBC class. So they've hated him ever since. And they were they were determined to get rid of him. But I'm talking about something a bit bigger than that. The BBC is an is a, an arm of a bigger bigger entity, and it, and it includes the British royal family, the City of London. It includes the U.S. political establishment. In other words, it's a sort of a world establishment, and that's what the BBC is pushing. It's pushing that agenda, and that agenda is not always the same as Number Ten, whoever happens to be in Number Ten. Usually, it's the same. Sometimes, however, you might get someone like Boris Johnson who committed that act of treason by supporting Brexit. He shouldn't have done that. So usually the deep state and the permanent and temporary government are usually have the same agenda and you can't tell the difference. However, at certain times, like Brexit, you'll see a little bit of a division between those two aspects of government. So what I'm what I'm, I say in my book and what I argue is the BBC represents what you might call the British deep state. And that includes the security state, MI5, MI6, the city of London, finance situation, it, the royal family. It actually represents those interests rather than number 10 Downing Street. So I think we have to distinguish between those two. That's fascinating that. You are listening to David Sedgwick. Please get online. Uh, good online retailers, try Amazon. Is I'm not saying Amazon are good, but we have to deal with what we have to deal with, right? Yeah. And independent authors like David have to deal with Amazon for the moment. Uh, is that true or did you hear it on the BBC by David Sedgwick? I'm holding it in my hand and I'm reading it at the moment. 
and I have no reason to say this, it is terrifically written, as were his previous books on the Beeb, and it's not full of anything you would have read before. He's very good. This is all up to date. And you know, there's a lovely thing you do at the end of every chapter. You put a little summary, which is brilliant. You know, it really is brilliant. And uh, I was intrigued by the fact you kicked off uh, the book by talking about the Beeb and climate change. Now, so we park that to tantalise the listeners for a moment. <laughs> park it for a minute, because okay. I, I'd like to talk to you about the coverage of the Queen's funeral. Mm. Um, holy Jesus. I have <laughs> never in my life seen anything like it. They outdid Sky. You know, Sky were geniuses at this stuff, at giving wall-to-wall coverage for days. Uh, now, look, I'm an Irishman. Maybe I don't get to have a say. I'm not a monarchist. But this could not be described as anything else other than breathtaking propaganda. Not for the late monarch herself, Mm. but propaganda for what's coming in in her place. That's how I saw it. How did you see it? Um, Well, as you know, I I don't actually watch BBC content. But I I am on social media, so I I did... I I mean, they didn't do anything that I didn't expect. Um, The the wall-to-wall stuff is is to be expected um i don't think you could escape it i think if you got a television set you probably couldn't you couldn't escape it um there's the sort of the the black ties the the uh the heavy voices the um the drama yeah i, I can imagine all of that stuff right i didn't actually witness it. i'm very happy to say i didn't witness i didn't sit through any of that at all i couldn't have sat through it anyway but it's an interesting thing the bbc and the royal family because like i said the royal family i think are part of this wider British establishment that I was talking about before, and I think they're, they're, they're involved a lot heavier than what I, that I think people realise. So on the one hand, the BBC are compelled to to promote the royal family, but there's this other side to them, I think, where they're quite, they'd like to be quite critical of the royal, royal family in terms of privilege. But the, the BBC have this kind of weird thing where they, they purport to be against privilege and power and, and money, but it's a kind of like almost like a jealous thing. I think they're, they're a little bit jealous of, of people. They, they criticize super rich people and they don't even realize how rich they are themselves compared to ordinary people in the street. BBC, um, people like Gary Lineker and other people who earn multi-million pound salaries are actually rich. I think they're rich. And yet yeah. BBC don't consider themselves to be rich, but they're really quite jealous of people who are really, really rich. And with the royal family, I think they have a sort of a Jekyll and Hyde relationship i think they are in awe of the royal family because they respect wealth and power but there's also a part of them that realizes it's not right to have uh, that kind of level of privilege in a a progressive society if you like a a society where the bbc are also talking about equality and we should all be equal and we shouldn't have these kind of like incredible privilege and riches um when there's people who can't eat so they have this kind of I suppose a difficult relationship with the royal family, but uh, I, I didn't see it, so I, I can't imagine what it was like. Yeah, it was just. I mean, obviously there was never going to be. I mean, in the days after the funeral, okay, when you're when when you're in the period of national mourning, you don't expect reporters to be asking questions about Prince Charles. But in the aftermath of that, you should expect the national broadcaster, if it is impartial and if it is 
if it has a duty to educate and inform, it should be asking about what sort of a monarch is this guy going to be, particularly in light of the fact that the Sunday Times in particular has asked some very serious questions about the guy's charities and, and, and money and some of his relationships and, and, and Jimmy Savile and all of that. We could get into that, but we'll leave that for a moment. Let's tease the listeners even further. We'll, we'll park climate change for three more minutes. Is that true or did you hear it on the BBC? New book from David Sedgwick. I recommend you get a copy of it now and read it. Let's talk about the BBC's coverage of Ukraine because I... I'm obviously naive. I'm, I'm happy to be naive. I'm a bit simple at times. I pine for the days when I could have expected the national broadcaster to do a sit-down interview with the president of the Russian Federation mm. rather than call him names <laughs> like he's nuts and he's yeah. crazy. Actually say, yeah. we've got to get to the bottom of this. What's yeah. going on? Um we don't live in such times. And again, yeah. the BBC, the BBC, the BBC. You would expect, wouldn't you, completely impartial coverage of what's happening in Ukraine, but yet we don't get that. Well, you, you would. You, you'd, hope, you'd hope that would be the case. And, and, and in theory, that should be the case. And if you, look, if you read their, their own literature and their own PR, that's what they constantly say, that they are, we are independent, we are fair, etc. We are impartial. So, yeah, you would expect them to at least attempt to give a balanced um, picture of, of such an important world event at the moment. But again, this, this coverage of Russia and Ukraine goes back to exactly what I was saying to you before, that the BBC, even if it wanted to, and I don't think it does, because the sort of propaganda is self-perpetuating within that organisation, they genuinely hate Putin. Every single BBC employee, as you get in cults, genuinely hates the figure of hate because they have to hate him this is 1984 this is all well when they do their two minutes eight hatred in front of the telly screen and the face of emmanuel goldstein comes up in the bbc um i don't know wherever they go the canteen maybe the face of vladimir putin comes up that's replaced donald trump although only temporarily i think as the figure yeah. of hate so you would expect and you would hope that a broadcast that tells you and brought and you know, uh, tells the world how fair it is and how fair-minded and how objective it is. Yes, you would hope that they would actually approach this um, invasion or occupation or whatever you want to call that, this conflict, a fair and open mind. And of course they haven't and because they can't, because the reason they can't is because this is a proxy war that's being carried out by hugely powerful American and UK interests. And they have been, and if you read uh, books for example, uh, Brzezinski's The Grand, the Grand Chessboard, which is a book about American for, foreign policy, and Brzezinski was a, a sort of neocon war hawk uh, associated with the Carter presidency. And in that book, that is a superb book. And that book basically tells you that the American aim is to destabilize Russia via Ukraine. And they've wanted to do that for 75, 75 years. So the BBC are never, ever going to go against that narrative because that now is a solid narrative. And I, I do quote in the book the former BBC director general, um, Hugh Green, uh, the brother of the novelist Graham Green. He was the, the director general from 1960 to 69. And he, he wrote a book which is a manifesto of the BBC, effectively. And in that book, he basically says, our propaganda is used to destabilise Russia. That's one, of the, that's one of our key objectives. And back in the 1960s, it looks like the BBC could say that. Nobody pulled him up about it. There wasn't social media then. No doubt in 
Nowadays, especially with Elon Musk in charge, maybe that would have been all over Twitter. However, he could say that in a book and that would be just accepted by the establishment. The Times and The Guardian and all the rest of them wouldn't even bat an eyelid because they're on the same side. But the BBC aim has been to destabilise Russia for the last 70 years from the Cold War onwards on behalf of what I would call UK and US hegemonic power, imperialist power, because what the American deep state military industrial complex has wanted to do for ages and Brzezinski says that in his book, is to become the world's number one economic and military superpower. And the only way America can do that is to get rid of its chief rival, Russia. And the best way to do that is via Ukraine. And we're watching that in 19, uh, in 2022. That's what they've been saying since 19, the 1950s. It's unfolding in front of us. And of course, the BBC didn't report on the coup orchestrated by Victoria Newland of the Eurasian yeah. State Department in Ukraine um, seven, eight, whatever it is now, years ago. Uh, just to, to point that out, I'm not challenging David on that point because he's right. Is that true or did you hear it on the BBC? You're listening to the author of the book, David Sedgwick, academic and expert on uh, the BBC, the history of the BBC and how and why the BBC does what it does. The time is coming up for 28 minutes past the hour. Lots and lots of interest in this. Let's let's talk about about climate change, because I, I I've been doing this show for years, and I have believed for many years. And I I'm not being modest here. I don't know very much about very much, but I I've known for a long time that climate change is 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 a threat that will be used to 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 vastly change the world to mm-hmm. to change it almost to, to where it'll be unrecognizable in terms yeah. of how we live and the levels of control that our governments will, will have over us. And I feel we're getting into an almost kind of an end game scenario with that at the moment. And no surprise, the BBC is front and centre and you take this on in the book and you hilariously, I think, kick off with uh, uh, the, the, the the BBC's claims about the, the, the Maldives <laughs> in 2004. Yes. Can you tell us that story? Because this is hugely significant. <laughs> yes. Um, well, the the Maldives, um, I think it's one of the lowest lying um, land masses in the world. Well, it's a group of a thousand, what is it, 1,200 islands, I think. Um, but quite a lot of them are less than a, a foot, aren't they, above sea level, I, I think. Um, but anyway, so um, this has always been a sort of like touch paper for, for the sort of the alarmists that one day um, climate change is going to submerge the Maldives. So, of course, naturally, the BBC were there straight away back in, I think this was 2004. There was an article written where they said the headline was something like, come here fast before it disappears. <laughs> it's really right. alarming BBC story that came out where they were, they were telling people, look, you've got to get here quick because this island is about to disappear. It's about, it's about to sink. And what a shame. You're going to miss this beautiful paradise. <laughs> so you better get here quick. And, um, of course, t- that never happened, as you might expect. It was hyperbole. Um, it was alarmism. And in fact, what's happened um, in 2022, the Maldives, uh, the population has increased by about 100%, I believe. And <laughs> they are building new airports. The Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia has invested about 60 million. They've built three new airports, I think, massive new hotel complexes. They're going to welcome... I got in touch with the Ministry of Tourism and they're going to welcome about one and a half million people, one and a half million visitors they're expecting in the next 12 months. So I don't know about come here fast in 2004, 
they're getting record number of tourists. And uh, looking at the academic research, the atolls uh, have increased the mass by about eight to ten percent. So far from sinking <laughs> into the ocean, they're actually expanding. It's the expanding. coral islands have actually expanded up to about ten percent, according to the academic research. So. Again, it was a typical BBC scare story. There was probably at that time, you know, I don't know whether it was an Al Gore story, you know, these, these people come up with these scare stories and they, they never actually, when you check back, they never have, not, I don't think a single one has happened. I know there's a few websites that can, that show you all these um, from the 1960s and 70s onwards, all the, the, the doom and gloom scenarios. That's right. Yeah, because in the 70s, the BBC was pushing the idea that we'd all be under ice and snow now. Yeah. Heavily. Yeah. But can I just read from the book? It's brilliant. Yes. Um, Come here fast before it disappears okay. was the BBC uh, headline that, that, that you alluded to. Mm. And this is from David's book. Uh, is, it, is that true or did you hear it on the BBC? It's brilliant. To visit the Maldives, begins the BBC article, is to witness the slow death of a nation. <laughs> yes, dramatic it's hilarious and you're right it doesn't get any more calamitous than that a nation dying and what is more dying slowly and you go on to say visitors visitors to the BBC website would, would no doubt have read those words with growing anxiety you're bang on and then you go on to show as you've already told us the arrivals to the Maldives in 2004 616,000 here we are last year 1.32 million and it's expanding <laughs> And this, yeah. is, this goes to something you said earlier on about disappearing. Now, we, we'll probably find that article online. I'm sure you were able to read it yeah. online. Yeah, it's archived. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. No, so the point I was going to make is they might be disappearing the broadcast, which they are. You're absolutely right to say that. I wonder why they're leaving these articles lying around. Is it just... Um, is it complacency or mm. are they... It probably is complacency where they, they just yeah. think people won't go looking for this stuff. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a bit of that, Richie. I think it's just com complacency. I think it's just such a huge bureaucracy now that I, I just think they forget. They they come up. It's like it's like I was talk, we were talking about the news before. It's like they 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 react in the moment and they're they're trying to scare people in the moment because they know we all move on. And I think they're just getting a bit careless. They're leaving those things around. Uh, and no doubt, someone if there's someone listening today from the BBC, they'll probably be going back to their archive and trying to get rid of that on. on from where it is online at the moment, like like they do with their news. I spoke to um, a BBC um, producer many years ago. The name genuinely escapes me, but it was a BBC News producer and a senior one. If I think of the name, I'll say the person's name because there's no reason to keep the person private or to keep them um, secret. Um, I was fairly livid. I met the person in London and, uh, you know, we I was doing a TV thing in London and they were mildly interested in it, the BBC, because we were going to do, you know, the sort of show that I'm doing now. We were going to do programmes whereby we would discuss everything and anything. Mm -hmm. So this BBC person was kind of half interested. I was introduced to this person by somebody working at TPV in London, senior producer. And I said to the person, do you know um, what happened on the 7th of July 2005? So I got the standard answer. Yeah, uh, terrorists came down from the north with explosives in their backpacks and they blew up trains and they blew up a bus and loads of people died. Mm. And I said, well, as far as I understand, I said loads of people died. There's no doubt about that. Um, in my opinion, that is. But do you know that on the evening of the 7th of July bombing, on the evening, while the blood was still steaming underneath the trains, t horrible image, but that's what I said. Mm. Do you know that a guy called Peter Power was on ITN News and he said, um, would you believe it? I run a crisis management company and we were running an emergency drill on the day 
in exactly the same train stations, imagining exactly the same scenarios. Would you believe that? Uh, and I said to the BBC person, what do you think of that? And the BBC person said, well, that's a load of bollocks. I swear to God. And I said, I can show you the video on YouTube of the guy saying, yeah. we were doing a drill on the day that imagined the things that actually happened. Now, I said, I don't care who you are, but that's next to impossible. There was something else going on on the mm. 7th of July. And you mm. as a BBC news producer, you should be very interested in that. Mm -hmm. The answer yeah. I got was, it's nonsense, it's not happening. And, and I wondered yeah. about that. Is that some sort of attitude that they, they identify in prospective employees or is it something that they foster? Is it something that they nurture in mm. the people they bring in? I'm fascinated mm. by that. Yeah, and you know, I, I I often refer to to the sort of cult mentality there. Um, I, th I think it's I think it's possibly it's a bit of both. I, I know there's a selection process before they get these people who uh, end up working there because whenever there's a job opportunity, it's so well paid and there's so many perks involved in that kind of job. They get masses masses of applications, but usually from ex public school. Oxbridge graduates, they, they're very carefully sifting through. So they're, they're already pre-selecting the kind of mindset that they're looking for there. They, they certainly won't take on a genuine working class hero like me and you. We'd have no chance, me and you, Richie. We, we haven't got the right background. No. And therefore, we probably don't share the right, the right ideology. So I think what happens when once they get in, because I've spoken to a few BBC people like you and I've just been amazed by the like you said there's like a force field around them where they they just will not entertain anything other than their narrative and that's in the book I I mentioned the word a lot narrative I always talk about narrative in all my books because I think that's very important to understand that the BBC are working to set stories and they are collating any information cherry picking and creating whatever they need to further the actual narrative. They're not interested in news. And I think I say that in my introduction to my book. This is not about, they don't report news. It looks like news, it sounds like news. No doubt some people believe it's news, but actually what it is, it's actually narrative that's already been planned ahead. So when you're, to answer your question there, um, yeah, I think that those, those people train themselves or at least a process of acculturation. We call it acculturation. When, when you go to a new place of work, uh, you go in there and you start to act and behave in the way that your fellow work employees act. Of course you do. Think about that. And I think we've all been in that situation when we go to work and we'll either, we'll bite our tongue if once we understand how, which way the wind's blowing, what kind of people we are working with, whether it's a factory, same thing in the, in the BBC. So they'll go in there and they'll understand, wait a minute, all these people hate Donald Trump. They hate Putin. Um, they're all anti-Brexit. So if you weren't that when you started, you will pretty soon realize that's what I've got to be. Entrainment. And, yeah, and, and you're right. And then I've had I had a conversation with a, a chap who worked for the BBC quite recently. Um, and the Nord, you know, the Nord Stream explosions, um, what happened after the Nord Stream explosions? A guy called Sikorsky, a very prominent EU politician and po Polish politician, married to Anne Applebaum, a, 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 an, an American journalist or a political activist who pretends to be a journalist, he actually sent a tweet out immediately saying, thanks, USA, after the um, after the explosions. So that was a very prominent member of the political establishment thanking the USA for basically blowing up Nord Stream. And I said that. I said to this uh, BBC guy in a conversation, I said, why didn't you... You're very keen on pr printing Donald Trump tweets, for example. Every time Donald Trump tweeted, it was on the BBC News website. So I said, 
bit strange this because he was telling me that they'd reported this fantastically they were totally impartial and i said okay well why didn't you there's a lot of things you you left out of your reporting such as this tweet that trend trended on twitter from sikorsky thanks usa why didn't you um reference that why didn't you produce it in one of your news reports and he's you know he actually said to me he said oh it's not the tweet that we report we report the reaction to it that <laughs> so, is amazing and we we deemed that there wasn't a reaction to it big enough and they come out of universities. I know this because it's a very senior journalist called Julian Petley, yeah. who's a really lovely bloke. I, I've not spoken to Julian for a long time, but I knew him years ago. Lovely fella. They come out of their unis and their colleges where they have been given, where they have been exposed to the basics of ethical journalism, where they have been taught the right thing to do. I think what you've described brilliantly in the book and today is a kind of entrainment, isn't it? You know, yeah. kind of adapting to, to your environment. Yeah. But it's still upset. It does genuinely upset me, and it comes out sometimes in my monologues, that there isn't any individuality in them that they can say, Jesus, this is terrible. Now, there are one or two. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lovely chap whose name I won't mention who's just left the BBC, a producer, and he's gone to work in the independent media. Uh, I think he's gone to work with uh, Gareth Ike, I think. A really lovely lad. And um, he had enough of it. Like when they sent around their emails three, four years ago to every um, head of programme, to every editor, to say, listen, the debate on climate change is finished. You're not to invite balance anymore. Don't get people on who disagree with climate change, no matter how impressive their academic credentials. And that was enough for him and he walked out. But the problem seems to be, David, um, he was one in a million. Before you come back on that, you are listening to David Sedgwick. It is 20 minutes to seven this Monday. David's book is, his new book, Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? It is eminently readable and very important. So get online and get a copy of it. David, you'll give us website details uh, in a moment. Um, yeah. So it's doomed then. So, I mean, you're, I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you explained earlier on why it's important to document this stuff. Yeah. And I suppose you hope that enough people will will read the book because it is so readable and they will apply what they've read to their understanding of the BBC programming and say to themselves, Jesus, why haven't I seen through this before? Yes, yeah. And I, I do get some quite good feedback from people that have said to me things like, oh, thank you, that, that's exactly what I was thinking. And um, you've articulated what, I, what I've been thinking. Um, thanks for doing that. But also, I think, I think you alluded earlier that there are people out there that uh, will, will never, ever be convinced. And I know that. And, you know, you have to accept as a writer that you're not going to get through to everybody. Um, you know, I still have people, I still have people coming on Amazon and writing fake reviews and just saying, oh, this is a load of trash. And quite, there's no points, there's no substantive points in their yeah. reviews. They, they just give you a one star or review. It's always unverified, which means they haven't actually bought the book. Well, Amazon shouldn't allow that to be published on mm. the site then, because they do that all the time. They're, they're yeah. always going after people who leave fake reviews for hotels. Mm. Why is that oh, yeah. courtesy not extended to you, David? No, that, no, it depends who you are. Um, I remember when Hillary Clinton uh, wrote a book or, or someone wrote a book for her, probably. And I know, I know she did get a lot of negative reviews immediately. Um, and Amazon removed every single one of them, which was very nice of them. No, they don't extend that courtesy to me, I'm afraid. I, <laughs> I've got quite, on, on my first book, BBC Brainwashing Britain, 
Um, I did an experiment once. I took away all the one-star reviews on Amazon were unverified. And I went from something like 4.2, because Amazon do a system out of five point. And I went from 4.2 to something like 4.7 when I got rid of all those fake reviews. So it's it's odd with Amazon because they, they kind of don't want you to write a book, but they're also very greedy yeah, yeah. Uh, and very acquisitive. So they, they do and they don't. They, they'd like to chuck me off probably, but I, I do sell a few books. And so they're making a bit of money out of me. Um, but you, you, we've seen what happened with PayPal recently. And I don't trust those platforms at all. So um, what I've done is I've, I actually now publish um, through bookshops. So uh, you were talking about ordering through Amazon. I always advise people to actually, if they want to buy one of my books, actually to go to bookshops. And you all you have to do is to give the title and the ISBN number, which, which is actually on the Amazon website. Um, and I also actually sell uh, through eBay as well these days. I mean, eBay is not that much better because once you realize who runs eBay, a midyar, and you realize that he's funding all these anti-democratic NGOs, then you've got to be careful about even spending money with with Google, uh, with um, eBay, to be honest. But some people prefer that to Amazon. But I, I always suggest to people that they just go to the bookshop and order at the bookshop. That's that's always the best best way, I think. Well, I'm delighted. I, I, I made an erroneous assumption that you, you wouldn't get in the bookshops because of the nature of of the book because of the topic but I'm delighted to be to hear that so yes yeah. dear listener get out to your local bookshop get the ISBN number from Amazon um, I mean I could, I could put it on, on my website yeah. Yeah. Uh, but 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 please do you've got the support I say this I don't often interview authors um, but we have to support guys like David Sedgwick A because it's a very good book but B because um, we need people to read this stuff so get it and read it and then give it to the wife or the husband and, yeah. and then give it to Gran uh, but don't give it any more than two people. This guy's got to eat too. They've got to, got to buy their own copy. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm actually currently doing the second. I think uh, I mentioned before, actually, um, I, I'm doing the, I'm actually on volume two at the moment. My, my intention is to create a huge, almost like an Encyclopedia Britannica um, of books that have the same title, but they're just, they're just going to be called, Is That True? Or Did You Hear It on the BBC? Volume one, two, three, and four. Exact same front cover, but different colours. And, maybe one day get a box set from Reader's Digest, who knows, or, you know, we might even get a Wikipedia entry one day. Fantastic. Well, please God. Um, so there's no hope of ever reforming the BBC. So that's just no. out the window. We're never no. going to do it. It's, it's too vast. It's a behemoth, isn't it? It's a monster. Yeah. Absolutely. No, no way. No way. I mean, it can't, it can't be reformed anyway, Richie, because like I said, it's an integral part of a very, very um, well-established power base uh, a, a u.s basically u.s uk power base and like i was saying before that sort of idea of a, a permanent bureaucracy and it was that permanent bureaucracy that formed the bbc in the first place so if nadine dories she's not the culture Sec secretary anymore of course but if, if she she was supposed to be reviewing the bbc before 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 her very good friend boris johnson got turfed out and she obviously went with him but she was supposed to be reviewing the BBC and a lot of people who are anti-BBC got very excited, but they didn't realize that what she was doing, Richie, she was actually, she's put out a, um, some research to see whether they can actually make the BBC part of your taxes. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. What, what, what Nadine Dorries was actually considering was making the BBC a bit like a poll tax where every single household in the country would be forced to pay for it. I mean, at least at the moment, people like myself, 
were very happy not to pay £150 a year or whatever it is now. So the Tories and Nadine Dorries were actually thinking of making the situation not better, i.e. defunding it and saying, look, when the government, you don't have to, you don't have to buy a licence. Um, they were going to actually make it the opposite. They were actually going to make sure every household in the country had to buy a licence. And I think that consultation paper is still current as we speak. I don't think it's been brought in yet. And I think it's still current and it's still very, very possible. In fact, I would say quite likely that the Conservatives are going to actually make the licence not only compulsory, but related to some sort of tax um household tax. Yeah, I don't so, um, I don't think you're wrong there. She was a Trojan horse, Nadine Dorries, no yeah, doubt about that. Uh, yeah. 13 minutes to at the top of the air. We've got David for another 6-7 minutes. Lots of interest in this. Shall I read a few comments uh, just yeah. quickly? Yeah, because huge interest in this on the BBC. And while I'm bringing them up, I'm going to give the book another plug. Is that true or did you hear it on the BBC by David Sedgwick? There's nothing in it for me. I don't get any money. David hasn't paid me to uh, promote the book. <laughs> he, he has not. Um, he's kindly sent me all of his books I get a lot of books sent to me to be honest and and I don't invite every author on for an interview Um, but his books are great so do check them out go to your local bookshop Uh, let's have a look Uh, basically what what I'm reading just scanning down here and people are in total agreement with you a lot of people have said to me through the pages of my website over the years that they gave up supporting the BBC through the licence fee many many years ago and it was the best thing they ever did some funny comments on there uh, Joe Public says the Maldives are apparently submerging due to the weight of new construction being built on the <laughs> islands it's got nothing to do with uh, climate change now Brian says he watched an advert on the BBC now the BBC doesn't do advertising so I think he means a promotion for a programme mm. he says everyone was black or as gay as Christmas he says in every promotion but this is England question mark now, to be the commercial broadcasters, not the BBC, are becoming almost comical, making mm. advertisements where you see families in, situ- in situations and they just don't look like everyday families that you would come across. Listen, I have an aunt who, uh, who, who, who uh, married um, an ethnic minority gentleman. They're still married. He's an amazing guy. He's a black guy. Nobody's any problem with any of this, but certain sections of the media, they want you to believe that this is basically the norm, you know, that, mm. that, that, that mm. people are living with uh, partners yeah. from a different e- ethnicity, but it isn't true. Mm. The BBC does do a lot of that. Do you know what they do that makes me laugh, David, before you come back in? They've started to do this on their, on their radio programming, and it pisses me off. And I'm going to be called a misogynist, but I don't care. So they've begun, on BBC Radio 5 Live in particular, they, for years they had this thing where they would invite a fan on from various clubs, even on The Breakfast Show, just just have a bit of a chat about how their team did, as mm. opposed to bringing on the ex-player. The ex-players can be a bit, you know, a bit a bit glib or a, a bit boring. So yeah. they used to bring on fans. It was generally lads. You know, we've got Bill on from uh, somewhere in Liverpool. We've got uh, Paul mm. on from Salford. Let's have a chat about it. Um, these days, I swear to God, it's mostly women. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. That... that, that. Well, um, yeah, it's 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 often the way that the, the BBC is always. You can count on the BBC to be always out of kilter with the majority. <laughs> I, I, I think in one one of my books, maybe this one, I, I do say what it, what it does a lot. What its uh, aim is is to invert reality. I, I use that phrase a lot, inverting reality, because if you watch the BBC, you would think that women's football was wildly popular. Yes, you think and it it's isn't. more popular than the man's game, actually. Yeah. 
And the reality, of course, is completely different. Um, I believe that Manchester United ladies team draws 2,000, 2,500 people, supporters. Yes, at least Sports Village, yeah. Yeah. Now, Manchester United men's team could fill Old Trafford four or five times over. Yeah. And what's the capacity? 75,000, I think, at Old yeah. Trafford or something. And we, so, don't mind, we don't mind the Beeb giving a bit of a leg up to no, women's football because... And listen, I'm certainly not trying to score points with women, I'm not. But no. uh, it's it's a very competitive, very professional game now. It is. But the fact remains that most blokes who watch football do not watch it. Mm. I was at Old Trafford yesterday. Um, mm. I won't go to watch the ladies because I'm not interested enough in it. But if it's on the box, I might watch a game every now and then. You're right. It is not reality. It hasn't mm. exploded in popularity. No. Um, it's growing. And, and the, the BBC is always, you can always guarantee that, well, I, I would say one thing that I suppose summarises them best is that they they represent tiny minority opinions. And what they try to do is they try to promote those tiny minority, and I would call sometimes extremist positions. They try to promote those as being normal and they try to promote what the majority of ordinary people believe and think, they try to pr- promote that as being extreme. So they, they turn the world upside down. Wh- whatever you're doing, whatever the topic is, whether it's immigration, women's football, whatever it is, you can guarantee that the BBC are promoting a very, very tiny elitist view of the world. And that's because they work for the rich, the ultra rich and the ultra powerful. So they're not working on behalf of the average person, the ordinary man and woman in the street. So that's why I think the majority of British public are against the BBC because they they see what it's doing. And and the, again, that phrase, I think, I, I love that phrase, inverting reality. Inverting that, reality. But I'm going to pull you up on something you said there because it's only right that I pull you up. Yeah. You said the majority of people. I'm not sure you're right to say that because they still generate or they are still generating an enormous amount of money through the licence fee. I'd love you to be right that the majority are seeing through it, but I'm not sure, David. Um, yeah, well, I think we're talking about slightly two different things there. I, I think that they're certainly, lo- le- keeping our football theme going, they're certainly losing the dressing room, I think, is, is what yeah. football, in football terms. But I think a lot of, uh, let's say a substantial minority are forced to buy the licence fee simply because they want to watch television, Richie. Fair and that, that's the catch, that, that's the, the catch-22, isn't it? That, if you want to consume um, other channels that are what over 100 and I, see, I haven't got television. I'm 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 sort of about 15 years behind here, but I know there's probably over 100 freeview channels available at the moment You're on right. the television set. And if you want to watch those 99 other channels, then the current situation means you are compelled to buy a television license. It's outrageous. Yeah, and there's a lot of people buying that license. I think that don't agree with it, but unfortunately, unlike people like myself who are very principled and maybe not that bothered about television, they still feel like they have to do that. And and I understand why. There's a lot of people, that's their only entertainment. My auntie is 76 years old, Richie, and she tells me, she says, yes, I understand what you say about the BBC, but she goes, it's the only thing I've got in my life. I can't yeah. go outside. I can't walk anymore. So it's like a friend. It's, it's a voice, the television set. So I understand that. But, you know, I think we're talking about two different things. I, I think support for the BBC is definitely falling, but I don't think I'd judge it by licence fees. Fair enough. Remember. You make a it's good compa- point there. It's compulsory. That's right. It's it's something I didn't take into consideration. You're and absolutely actually, right. Richie, I think if if it ever come to pass, um, and this is only anecdotal in my opinion, but I think the BBC know this as well. If 
the license fee was ever made um, not compulsory, you know, in the word you could opt in or opt out. I've got a feeling they'd probably lose about 50% of their um, income immediately. If They've not got more. 20, is it 25? I think they claim to have 25 million licenses. I think they might even get down to 10 million if it was made not compulsory. I think you might be right, and, and maybe more. So many people these days subscribe to mm. Amazon Prime or, or yeah, to Netflix. Exactly. We're bloody well out of time, but here's the thing, right? Um, I'll ask you back on before Christmas, I will, okay. to, to talk in general about stuff, not to talk yeah. necessarily about the books, because I love having you on. Yeah. You did say to me one time before, if you're ever stuck, Richie, give Don't me a shout out. But I wouldn't do that just because I'm stuck. Um, I bring you back on because I love listening to you and the listeners like hearing you as well. Uh, David's book is, Is That True or Did You Hear It on the BBC? David Sedgwick, you should be able to get it at your local bookshop. Just yeah. give them the ISBN number. You'll find that on Amazon if you don't want to deal with Amazon. Uh, but but it's on there as well. It's a, another terrific achievement, pal. And thanks. Uh, thanks for giving us your time today. I really appreciate And I will uh, be in touch to get you on early in December for a chat at, at the latest. Super, thanks. It was nice talking to you, Richie, and uh, good night, everybody. Thanks very much, David. David Sedgwick, again, is that true or did you hear it on the BBC? Check it out. Uh, give it a read. Support the genuinely independent media. No, it's a great book, great read. It's very funny, that, that beginning about the Maldives. <laughs> yeah, all that nonsense. And, and nobody calls them on it these days. You know, they're doing... They're running programmes pretty much every day, the BBC telling us that the end is nigh. The end is nigh. We're going to die. The planet will be uninhabitable in a few years because of climate change. And yet, as David said so succinctly earlier on, they've been doing this for years, decades, the 1970s, the 1960s. In the 70s, they were telling us that by now, we'd be freezing to death in an ice age. Um... But they never get called on it, do they? No, they don't. Hey, listen, that's about it for Monday's programme. Thank you very much for being with me again. I really appreciate it. I'll be back with you uh, tomorrow at five and all this week. Jenny Lowe's, uh, the lovely Jenny, the British nurse who's living in Portugal. She's on the programme on Wednesday. There are other guests, but I can't tell you off the top of my head, uh, including tomorrow. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a busy old week. And we'll make time for a phone-in as well, for a good hour of a phone-in. So keep that in mind. I like the phone-ins. I like listening to you as much as uh, maybe sometimes you like listening to this programme. So that's it. Thanks to David Corton, the Heritage Party, heritageparty.co.uk. And thanks again to Dave Sedgwick, uh, David Sedgwick, uh, for chatting about his new book. It's uh, Is that true or did you hear it on the BBC? You and me will talk tomorrow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Why not close out the programme today with Smokey's layback in the arms of someone I said to myself earlier on. So here it is. Why not? Hasta mañana. All the best. Bye.